Hi, I'm Gideon Marcus, creator of galacticjourney.org and journeypress.com, and you're listening to Two Geeks Talking. Hi, I'm Lorelai Esther, illustrator for the Keetra Saga, comic artist and fan artist, and you are watching Two Geeks Talking. Hi, I'm Janice L. Newman. I'm author of The Eighth Key and At First Contact and editor of the award-nominated fanzine Galactic Journey, and you're watching Two Geeks Talking. Good morning, afternoon, evening, everyone. Two Geeks Talking is an entertainment industry interview show where we interview the creative people from the comic, film, TV, movie, and video game industries. And of course, I'm your host, Kurt Sasso. We are joined today by not one, not two, but three guests today because why not make it four Geeks Talking? Because that just makes things easier and I just have to change the logo. Three authors, I should say, and, and one talented artist as well, too. They are all writers in their own regard. We are joined by... Gideon Marcus, Janice L. Newman, and Lorelai Esther. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having us. For those that don't know anything about yourselves, tell us who you are. I think uh, you invited us. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we're in the wrong room. <laughs> I guess I started the geeky journey, although maybe we can call it a nerdy journey since we can make that distinction. Although back in 1967, we had neither of those words. The only one we had was dork. The word geek existed, but it was not used in the same way. That it's it's someone who bit the head off of chickens. Right. In 2013, or to me, 1958, I started a project called Galactic Journey. That's galacticjourney.org. Basically, I run a time machine where I blog from the past as if I live there and am a denizen of the past. So I write about science fiction, the latest issues of analog and fantasy and science fiction and galaxy. And I also write about the space shots. So in 1958, I was talking about Pioneer. And now I'm talking about Gemini and upcoming Apollo flights. And uh, it's really exciting. And it started out with just me. And then Janice started doing editing. It became a snowball. And now there's more than 20 people working on the journey all around the world, all types of people. It's pretty great. Uh, and I'm also a writer and I run Journey Press. I started editing Galactic Journey years ago. Basically, every article that comes out for the journey, which is every two days, I edit it before it goes up. Make sure it's error-free, hopefully. <laughs> or as much so as I can make it. I also am a author. Uh, I write queer romance. We'll probably get back, get into that later in the show, I imagine. But I specifically write queer genre romance. So fantasy or science fiction queer romance. I'm Lorelai Esther. I also write for The Journey and live in the, the past with my family, up to including watching shows from the time, listening to radio at the time, reading books from the time, uh, and then reviewing them on the, on the blog Galactic Journey. In addition to that, I am also an artist. I actually just uh, was nominated for the Hugo for Best Fan Artist, uh, which was a huge honor. My most recent project is I'm doing Paint-tober, where I'm trying to make and post a painting every single day in October. So we'll see how that goes. We're, I've just posted the first one today. <laughs> well, it's safe to say that everyone is creatively talented in their own regard. I definitely am going to touch on the Hugo Awards as well, too. Let's start with this. What's the most misunderstood aspect about the old sci-fi that maybe people of this generation don't understand. I can answer that one pretty quick. There's two. One is that anything written before 2000 is regressive and terrible and probably written by a white guy. Uh, and the other is that uh, women did not write science fiction before Ursula K. Le Guin. What was fascinating about my journey into the past, I started in 1954 offline, just reading science fiction magazine. And I was very quickly struck by how many women there were writing science fiction at the time. 
dozens, dozens of women. And it was still disproportionately small compared to the number of men writing, but it was still 10% of the people publishing were women. And they published some of the best stuff. When Ursula K. Le Guin came on the scene in 1962, there were three dozen women who were concurrently plowing the field for her. And there was amazing progressive stuff because while the Overton window was further to the right back then, and while there was more regressive attitudes, the fact was there were plenty of progressive people who dreamed of a better future and fought for a bigger future. And it's not like civil rights began with Martin Luther King. The sci-fi genre is so broad and so vast. What makes you each excited for creating in the sci-fi genres that you do? That's a great question. I have options that people in 1967 didn't in how I tell my stories. And I think that's one of the things that I find very exciting. There tends to be this perception that genres are sort of distinct from each other. You have science fiction, romance, and you have mystery, and then you have real fiction. In truth, those lines don't have to be so distinct. And people get even more granular. Oh, I only read hard science fiction or or whatever. The truth is, there's no reason why you can't have a romantic story set in a science fictional setting. And there's no reason why you can't have a really great fantasy book that also revolves around a romance or mystery or any other number of interesting things. And so I feel like I have license to explore in the modern day in ways that weren't possible. Certainly you couldn't write a queer romance with a happy ending back then. Not only would bookstores not carry it, but the mail wouldn't ship it. Uh, It was illegal. I just feel lucky that I live when I do now so I can write the kinds of stories I want to write uh, and explore ideas that I want to explore. As we own our own publishing company, we have the flexibility to do whatever we want without people telling us, no, you can't do it that way because we're not sure it'll sell enough books. You must write it this way because we're not sure that thing will sell. Instead, I get creative freedom and the only limitations I have are those that I put on myself or that we determine for ourselves. And I think that's a lot of fun. I love to write. I knew I, knew I wanted to be a writer because I worked in a corporate America for a while. And the day I gave my resignation to my last position, I wrote a thousand words of my first novel. So <laughs> I would say that the thing that excites me the most about drawing and sci-fi and fantasy type art is just the freedom it gives you. I wrote in my sketchbook on the first page, I want my art to instill an instinctual emotion in the viewer when they view my art. And I think that while you can do that with more realistic and grounded subjects, there's something very special about the freedom of exploration that sci-fi and fantasy art gives you, where you can not only explore realistic art, but in a completely otherworldly setting. I think the pulp masters um, are an example of this, of, of how evocative you can get with your art, even when it's portraying something totally alien. And I think that creates a really interesting set of feelings in the reader where you have not only the feeling of whatever the piece is creating, but also that excitement of something entirely different that you're looking at as well. And that combination is so cool. I really like writing today. I would have liked writing back then too. The thing about science fiction is you are speculating about the future. And I write reasonably hard YA set in space. And that's my excuse to tell about all the latest discoveries about space that we have, particularly astronomy, because when people go to other planets in my books, I try to make it as accurate as possible and talk about, you know, the exobiology article I read last week Obviously, reading the story doesn't realize that I'm translating from, you know, astronomy and astrophysical journals. <laughs> They're just YA books. But, but it's fun for me. Looking at yourselves as, as creative people that you are, what is the hardest part about being creative in your respective fields? Is it the beginning, the middle, or the end of your process? <laughs> 
Uh, for me, it's the end. It's it's always the end. When I'm between projects, there's a little bit of, oh, what am I going to do next? And then there's a, a little bit of a stressful time. It's always the same. I think to myself, I want to create something new. I think about it or I talk about it with my family and then I come up with something and then I start writing something new. And usually for the first two, 10 or 20,000 words, I race through it and I'm doing great. And then by the middle, I may be starting to struggle. And then by the end, <laughs> I'm like, I think this is where I want to go with this. I'm not quite sure what happens next. It's usually not the very end, but like that part before the end that I'm like, I start to get stuck or bogged down. Usually I have to talk about it and fight through it and figure it out. I always get through it and I, I make it good, but the, it's the end for me. So the funny thing is I've never really thought about it as a segmented process. You sit down and you make art and it's hard. <laughs> but um, one of the struggles that I, I became aware of recently and that I've started to address and overcome is the fear of failing before you even start. I, I know a lot of artists start Struggle with the feeling that you aren't good enough to make this piece. You've got an idea in your head and you just know that if you try to put it on paper, it's not going to turn out the way you want it to. And that causes a lot of people to freeze up. I, to an extent, had that problem too, especially when it came to experimenting with new mediums. So that's part of the reason why I'm doing the Paint-tober challenge is because I'm not a very strong painter. And I'm like, all right, I'm just going to do it for a month and see what happens. I actually didn't like the result of the first couple paintings I've done. And I think that's fantastic because it's only up from here. Like <laughs> I'm doing a service to my future self by failing now so that I can <laughs> succeed in the future. And of course, what she calls failure, the rest right. of us call amazing. So, you know, <laughs> she's Nobody is harsher or has higher standards than she does. <laughs> I, I think that's like us as creative people in general. We're always our harsh, harshest critics, no matter who looks at our work. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I was going to say, don't hate me because I'm beautiful. I, uh, <laughs> you know, my problem is not the creative process. I, my, my problem all has to do with the business side of the work. As far as writing is concerned, because I have all my plots already done, you know, I have a writing quota of 500 words a day, which I usually beat. And I just write every day. And then the book is done. Creating has always been very easy for me. And I think the reason why is I have been running tabletop role-playing games since I was eight. And writing and DMing are very similar processes. You have the universe in your head, you have a bunch of characters, and then you have to think fast on your feet to figure out what they're going to do. And that's just something I've, I've been doing for 40 years now. So it's very easy for me. So creative, no problems. I don't have writer's block. I don't have any of those issues. I don't even ha really have imposter syndrome. I mean, I've got Larry Niven and Ted White reading my book right now. <laughs> but I have tremendous imposter syndrome and insecurity about the business end of things, if you ever want to talk about that. <laughs> but that's not as fun. <laughs> Somebody's probably watching going, I really want to make it in this business. What do I do? And I, I'm happy to tell you about it. <laughs> if we have time, we may touch on that, or we'll just have to have you back on, uh, all three be back on. That's fine. Whatever you want to talk another about. Another interview. What is your creative crypto? night then what or whatever the sci-fi alternative of <laughs> is the thing that kills creativity or at least productivity i should say is lack of time right mm -hmm. i mean the, a room of her own it's it's all about having an hour or two of dedicated time to work Thursday, i had set to finish editing part four of my latest book and we had an issue we had a crisis and we had to resolve it so that didn't happen that day it's easy for me as a semi-retired person to say oh i, I just write 500 a thousand words every day it's no big deal but you know if you're working for a living then you might come home and be just completely drained and have nothing left but to watch television. It's and not, that's okay too. That, that is okay. I'm in a privileged position and I recognize that. What do you think? Oh, same thing. Time, absolutely. When, uh, 
when the summer ended and school started for me and I had significantly less time to work than I did before, I'm like, well, there goes my full art curriculum I laid out for myself. It just comes down to finding the time in the cracks for me. And often like challenges and things are good for me because they just force me to sit down and do it regardless of whether I have time or not. It's like, I got to get it done today. And if I don't, well, then it's going to bleed in tomorrow. I'm just going to do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that can get a little stressful and, yeah. and, and it, lead it, to burnout. It can lead to burnout. So it, it's about choosing moments when you feel like you can get into that state of mind too and not pressuring yourself constantly. Sure, really how to answer that question. I don't know that I have one specific thing that is my kryptonite. I certainly have things I like to write, but more than other things, I'm much better at writing conversation than I am at setting. I have to be really careful or I end up with two heads in a white room, you know, talking. I often find myself going back and saying, okay, no, wait, stop. Where are they? What are they looking at? What's around them? What are they smelling? What are they hearing? It's the opposite for a lot of people. Some people, they just, they have such vivid mind's eyes that scenes are easy. Realistic conversation is hard. So it just depends on the person. For me, it's setting scenes is difficult. I have to consciously decide to do it because if I don't, two people talking in a white room. <laughs> what was an early experience where you learned that language had power? Well, I can tell the story where I learned when art had power. Yeah. <laughs> art is a language? Art is a language. Um, art is a language. But I, I mean, this is the, the one that I, the, the bluebird story that I... You can tell. You can tell. I actually got my first spot of fame when I was nine years old. My mom had just become the Batgirl of San Diego, which is another instance of language being power. She was the one who went up to DC uh, at a panel when uh, the New 52 had just come out and asked, where are the women? Because there was one woman out of an entire new lineup of comics. And there was like a hundred credited creator spots and one or two were women. And one main female character in the Pantheon. The new Justice League, they were promoting it as a bastion of diversity. It was the same old thing. It was like seven people, all of whom were white, except for one black male and one female, Wonder Woman. Um, and they didn't even have any women on the panel itself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was in 2011. So it was a long time ago. It was over a decade ago. It became a big deal for about 15 minutes. <laughs> it may have had some lasting effects in terms of DC did start to bring in more female creators after that and uh, started having a greater focus. DC uh, animated series, the Superhero Friends or something. Yeah, like that. it was the, the Superhero Girls yeah. show came out a few years later. And I remember specifically one of the higher ups at the convention, one of the DC people actually specifically like talking to me about it. <laughs> like they wanted to talk to me about it and tell me that they were doing this thing. I think this may have been a direction people were moving anyway, and, and society was moving anyway, perhaps it made a difference. She's very humble, but she, she <laughs> was kind of a catalyst moment where she went directly to them and said, something needs to change. That's her first moment. Yeah. Uh, and she directly helped me get my first moment because I'd just come from summer camp. I was nine years old and I'd drawn this little two-page pamphlet comic. And so mom at the time had been talking to all of these DC creators and important people. I'm going to hold um, this up for a second. So this is Bluebird, the original. Yeah. Yeah. You can see she made this cute little uh, comic. Me? It's all reversed or it may not be on yours. No, no, it's, it's, it's right. Yeah. And uh, this was her, this was her cute, really great little comic. So she'd been talking to all these creators, writers, artists, um, and people. I was like, here's my comic. 
I just did this. It's so cool. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. It yeah. was cool. <laughs> it was cool. I gave it to uh, one of those creators I gave it to was Scott Snyder, the writer for uh, Batman Eternal and several other DC properties. And then uh, every year after that, I was um, I would go up and give him like a new copy of the Bluebird issue in the store. There was uh, three total. One year, I said hi to him. I'm like, hey, Scott. And he was rushing out of a panel. He stops. He turns. He's like, I want a picture with you. This is the inspiration for the new Bluebird character in Batman Eternal. <laughs> there was a, a new character that was added to the Batman comic called Bluebird, who was inspired by my little Bluebird comic, which I think Scott Snyder still has it on his desk. I, I hadn't really realized the importance of like who he was or the, the moment at the time. I just thought it was so cool that somebody liked my comic enough to base yeah. a character off of it. That was the cool part. And so I think the real power of art for me is the ability to inspire others. Like, even if you are arguably a lower level than somebody else, you can always inspire as long as you are being honest and, and doing what you love. And I think that's just really cool. To be clear, the, the character that Scott created is a different character. They, yeah. they are named Bluebird, but they're a different person. Lorelai actually, years later, drew a picture of the two Bluebirds meeting and gave it to him. And it was really cool. <laughs> Awards and accomplishments are usually always nice to be nominated for and, and to receive here as well, too. Now, the Hugo Awards are a, a wonderful award show, and they, they showcase great talent. How did being nominated for the Hugo Awards, what were your feelings towards that? Did you get to go to the, the shows? First, I, I want to point out that it is great. We are, of course, honored and humbled and delighted to have uh, been nominated for the Hugo four times. But the thing that I cherish the most... Mm -hmm is my Space Cowboy Award, yes. which I got the one year I wasn't nominated for Hugo, and also the Rod Serling Award, which I got before my first Hugo nomination. Yes. Well, I suppose if we're talking about, you know, <laughs> typical run-of-the-mill awards, the Hugo's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> Lorelai, you've been double nominated. Why don't you talk about your experience yeah. with the Hugos? <laughs> well, when I, I first learned about the Hugos, I actually didn't know what they were. Like everybody else in America. <laughs> And over time, I realized, oh, okay, this is this is what they are. But that was when the the journey was first got its first nomination. And I actually technically was nominated, I believe, the second year uh, with my name for the Journey Project because I was one of the original writers and contributors for that. I was like, this is cool, but it didn't really feel very personal to me because while I'd contributed to the project, it was still very much to me. It's my parents' project. I appreciate the. The recognition for this, but I, I don't feel like it's particularly important to me. Recently, I got nominated in my own right for Best Fan Artist, and art is something that is so personal to me and something that I want to devote my whole life to. So getting a nomination for that, I cannot express the overwhelming joy and excitement that had for me. People are, are looking at this art and enjoying it, and it, it was so cool. <laughs> I remember going up and seeing the email and just being like, this can't even be real. I think for me, the thing that the nomination did for me was it motivated me to create more consistently and post my art online more consistently because before that, uh, I'd been sort of lax. I, I had an online portfolio through social media, but I was like, eh, I, I don't really need to maintain it. I was always creating, but never really sharing it or trying to improve that much. And that sort of sparked me. I'm like, 
this is it. I need to really start focusing and see if I want to make art into a career, because if I can be best fan artist, then someday maybe I can be nominated for best pro artist. So that's where it's, it's directed me is I'm even more motivated now to create more work and inspire more people. <laughs> I tease about the Hugos. The thing about a Hugo is if you get nominated for the Hugo, you often have an idea that it's coming because it takes a lot of nominations to get on the ballot. And so your your friends are like, oh, yeah, we're rooting for you. And it's like, awesome. So so when you appear, and especially when you appear multiple times, you're like, okay, we've got a consistent body of work. We have fans. We can't expect to be on the ballot every year. But when we get on the ballot, it's cool, but it's not overwhelming. With the other two awards that I got, they were complete surprises. That's why they were so amazing. The Space Cowboy we got in 2020. Space Cowboy Books is a bookstore in sure. Joshua Tree run by Jean-Paul Garnier, who is uh, the head of the Science Fiction Poetry Association. He was casting about, he wanted to make a new award that recognized people who helped science fiction out. Sort of like the, the Big Heart Award that the Hugos have. Um, and he picked us out of the blue and we were just blown away. And the cool thing about that award is the committee that determines who gets the next year's award is made up the people who have won it before. It becomes this, this cool perpetual thing. Uh, and then the Rod Serling Award came out of nowhere. Lorelai and I were watching The Twilight Zone as it came out 55 years ago. We didn't have air quotes back then. so <laughs> And we were just reviewing it. And Lorelai was even starting to add her tags to the articles. That was her start on the journey. And then the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, out of nowhere, sent us a plaque saying, thank you for your excellent work. We're like, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, really we, cool. we watch Rod Serling every week, you know, <laughs> talking about it's his show and then his Memorial Foundation is awarding us. Coolest thing about the Hugos is the cool people we have met as a result, because there's all a bunch of great creators. And we've made some people that we, we call good friends now. Alyssa Winans, who is a pro. We got to meet Shauna McGuire. Yeah, Shauna McGuire. She Very gave cool. Lorelai 2000 magic cards at Worldcon. She's <laughs> <Nice>. uh, <laughs> the nicest person. She's um, so nice. And, <laughs> and Olav and Amanda, the uh, unofficial Hi. Hugo finalist blog. It's just so many. Uh, AJ Odasso. Rachel Cordasco, AJ Odasso. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just all these really cool people. We got to meet most of them in Chicago, and, and now we're friends. Uh, and a gentleman from um, Nigeria. Uh, oh, yeah, Donald. Yeah, Donald. Yeah, he's super um, cool. I've also won an award for one of my novels. Uh, I won the Rainbow Award for Best High Fantasy Gay Romance for my first novel, The Eighth Key. That was really exciting. For that award, you have to send in a sample of your work for the judges to review. I knew it was a distant possibility. I knew it existed, but I didn't think I would receive it. And so when I did, that was very exciting and very validating, um, at, you know, particularly for a first novel. That, that was for the eighth key. Yeah, I've been, nice. <laughs> sorry, I've been writing for a long time, but this was my first professionally published piece. We all have different things we want as creators that we want our, our our creations to do. And, and mine was, I just want it to be something that people could enjoy, enjoy reading. And um, so it was, it was so very validating, not just to receive the award, but to read the things the judges said about the book and, and why they liked it, why they chose it, what they enjoyed about it. That was, that was a hugely validating experience as a, as a writer. And it really helped motivate me to keep, to keep going. If I, you know, if, if, if I'd only gotten like, if I'd heard like negative things, I would have been much more discouraged. And instead I, I heard positive things and that really pushed me. And she was um, on the long list for The Astounding this year. The for my best, second book. Best new author. Astounding is for oh. the best new author. I got uh, long listed for um, my second book, Sienna. But it was because I brought this out last year. Because you don't get nominated unless you have a new book out. 
No, I, you know, it's just when you start. Oh. Um, this is your second year of eligibility. I was also nominated under that name. I have two. Uh, I have two pseudonyms I write <laughs> under. <laughs> Smut name and clean name. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I always wondered about pen names used by authors. What is the draw to doing that, and why do some authors do that? For me, when I started writing gay romance, a uh, gay romance novel that had sex in it, I didn't want my mom to know. (laughs) Um, And it's not that I was afraid of being disowned. I don't have that kind of family. Uh, It was just a matter of, I'm not sure, I would feel more comfortable not having to discuss this with my mom. Whether she's enjoying it or not. (laughs) I don't want to (laughs) know. And I would rather she not know. So I chose a pseudonym in that case with which to write novels that had sexual content, as many modern romances do. When I wrote At First Contact, which is actually three novellas all separate, I could see the... uh, Android on the cover there. It does not have any sexual content. It's it's safe for work and and for younger readers, maybe a little sophisticated for younger readers, but there's nothing that would keep it from, keep anyone from reading it. And so I said, well, I should write under a different name for this one, but I wanted something closer to my real name. I ended up choosing my maiden name in part because She doesn't love me. (laughs) Yeah, that's totally it. It's a little more complicated than that. There's a thing when you have a husband and a wife who are both writers. The husband tends to be taken more seriously. And if the wife puts out work under the same last name, it tends to, at least historically, not be considered as seriously, or or she's considered a hanger-on in some fashion. I have been writing for a very long time. I write my own thing, and I, it has nothing to do with Gideon. In fact, Gideon talks about how when he turned in his resignation, he wrote the first thousand words. But before he turned in his resignation, we had talked about what we wanted to do next in our lives. And I said, I want to be a writer. That's what I want to do with my life. So I wanted to be seen as my own person, as a separate entity from my husband, as a separate creator from my husband. So I chose a name that is still mine, that I could you know, share with my family, but that is not automatically going to be assumed to be oh, she's an appendage of his work or her work is going to be inferior to his because he's the real writer and then she just does her own, you know, whatever. We're, we're like Lee Brackett and what's her husband's name? Yeah, I don't remember his husband's name. <laughs> Ed, Hamilton, right? Yeah, I, I'm not sure everybody knows that reference. I don't care. <laughs> if you don't know who Lee Brackett is, then... then I, you... I'm not sure if they know the situation between her and her husband. They were both big science fiction authors. Lee Brackett was arguably the bigger name. Mm-hmm. I mean, she wrote the first screenplay for Empire Strikes Back. That's why I choose to use a pseudonym. There's also small privacy concerns. I don't work very hard to, I mean, obviously I'm using my my real name in many cases. I just want that, even if it's an illusion, I want that little barrier between my everyday name and, and the name that I have on my books. So, oh yeah, I, I, yeah, you uh, have a pseudonym. I, have a pseudonym. <laughs> I forget because um, Esther is actually my middle name. I, I decided that I wanted to separate my public and private self a little bit, just mentally being able to be like, okay, I am now Lorelai Esther. I'm going to have an interview. I'm going to be at a convention on panels and be a personality versus I'm going to be Lorelai Marcus and I'm going to go to school and play D&D with friends. And having that division of self where it's now I'm working, now I'm not, I think is very important, especially for public creators who are personalities who are doing big public events. Because if you get criticism on your work or if you, heaven forbid, any like hate, but I haven't personally received any 
even just mentally having that division so you can turn off the work part of your brain so you can be like, I am now going to be my normal self, I think is very important and valuable for preserving your mental health and not overworking yourself. But what current projects are you excited about showcasing and sharing with the masses? Well, the the two biggest things I'm working on is I'm almost done with the Vilma, which is the third book in the Kitra saga. I won't say it wraps it up. It does kind of make a nice trilogy with those two, although there's a fourth book that'll follow directly on. But that's really exciting. There's nothing I love more than, than seeing a book just like spinning a thread, just get really big. But the big thing, of course, right now is with the galactic journey, it's always changing, right? It, last year was 66, next year is 68. And of course, the biggest thing I looked forward to last year was the debut of Star Trek. Thing you've been looking forward to for the past eight the years. <laughs> One of the things we did at the beginning of summer was we actually me and a whole bunch of other people made a Trek zine as if we had only seen the first season of Star Trek, a real paper Trek scene, which you can only get on paper, by the way. Yeah. Oh. So this was super exciting. I love everybody reading the journey and I love people listening to our radio station, all these things, and I want them to keep oh. doing those things. But it's been really exciting connecting to people real time because every week we watch Star Trek. So every Thursday we watch Star Trek as it comes out with original commercials, with period fanzine readings. We get lots of people joining us, often as many as 40 across the broadcast and in person because we also have a live event here. And this kind of immersive broadcast is catching on. In fact, Chris, one of our UK associates, was kind of sad that they couldn't participate in Star Trek because, of course, Star Trek was an American phenomenon, are broadcasting the premiere of The Prisoner Oh, wow. In black and white, as it was originally shown, with original commercials preceded by Stingray and succeeded by some other show. And they're going to have a whole UK contingent. And that kind of bringing together fans real time, dozens at a time, to experience something that they never could get anywhere else, that is the most exciting thing. And Star Trek will go on for the next two years. And if there's anything I want people to get out of this, aside from buying our books, is joining us for that. As I mentioned before, I'm doing Paint-tober. So if you go to either my Instagram or my Twitter, I'm Lorelai.Ester on Instagram and Lorelai.Ester on Twitter. I'm posting, hopefully every day, a new painting. So I'm really excited to see the progression just of my, of my skill level over the course of the month. So that's probably the most interactive thing I'm doing right now. Uh, I'm also actually doing uh, concept work for Rebecca Ink Partridge of Alien Designs for her new... Uh, upcoming novel, which is really cool. And I don't know if those are going to be released publicly. I know she's done some, released some of the preliminary sketches on her Facebook account. So you can probably go check that out if, you, if you're interested. I'm going to be starting the illustrations for Hivelma once um, he finishes writing it. <laughs> uh, so if you don't know, the whole Kitra saga is illustrated by me. So I'm going to be starting those. And we're talking about doing a re-illustration of the first book because the first one I did when I was 15 and we're interested in doing sort of a, a deluxe edition with, with the new trilogy out. So I'm probably going to be working on that in the next few months. Just continuing to, to draw and work, but... That's the gist of what I'm working on right now. I have two books. Uh, one is finished and is with the editor now. The first one is a retelling of Snow White 
uh, with a lesbian spin. It's just a little different. <laughs> Maybe not what people are going to expect. Well, they will because it'll say it on the back of the book. <laughs> a lesbian retelling of the Snow White myth. Who gets with who might be a surprise to people. It's a whole new version of the story. Uh, and that is finished. And I'm, I'm really pleased with how it came out. And I'm excited to see what my editor thinks of it. And that should be coming out and everything goes as planned. June for Pride Month. Yeah. And that'll be under my my Laura Weir name, my smut name. <laughs> and then I actually uh, also under that name have a sequel to The Eighth Key that is 90% done, but I'm still reworking parts of it. There were parts of it that just weren't up to my standards or my editor standards. And so I'm going to be going through that and completely trashing some scenes and rewriting others to make it better. Hopefully that will come out the year after, uh, 2024. It might be December. Might, so either December 2023 or... Um, 2024, depending on how it goes. <laughs> Hopefully we will, I will be able to, to get that beaten into shape. And if I can't, then I'll write something else. <laughs> Everyone has one person that inspired them on their path to where they are today. Who was that for you? One person inspired me. I can't possibly limit it to a single person. There's just way too many really inspiring, creative people out there. Some of my influences, Neil Gaiman was a big one, and Terry Pratchett, not only because of their amazing work, but the way they talk about writing, the way Neil Gaiman talks about writing, about creating, several times has made me want to write. He's one of many writers who says, if you want to be a writer, you need to write more than anything else, more than workshops or classes. You know, I took a creative writing course at my community college and, and hated it. One of the few classes I took at that school that I really didn't enjoy. I felt like, oh, I couldn't be a real writer for many years. Neil Gaiman talked about how to become a better writer, to become a better creator. The one thing you have to do is do it, is write. That really pushed me to write. For my latest book, the Snow White one, I've always really enjoyed fairy tales. There was a fairy tale retelling by Tanith Lee called Red as Blood. And that was actually a Snow White retelling, a completely different one from mine. But I read that when I was a teenager and it was very formative for me. In fact, I read it and then I, I looked for it, couldn't find it. This was life before the internet. I didn't know how to find that story that I read in a library later when I didn't have access anymore. It took me years to hunt it down. And I finally was, it's so different from, from these days. People don't realize how much easier it is now to just find things that you want. <laughs> Music, uh, stories, something that you may have heard of once, you can say, hey, what's this thing? People will help you find it. That one was very influential on, in that it made me realize I could take an existing story, an existing fairy tale, which I had I'd grown up reading fairy tales, and do something different with it, transform it, make it something new and different, and change the way the story goes uh, in interesting ways. It's hard to put into words how revelatory that was for me, that you're allowed to do that. You're allowed to take an existing story that everybody knows and put your own spin on it. So it's something else. It's, it's something new and that's acceptable. <laughs> so that was really exciting for me and a huge influence on, on my current book. There's lots and lots of other authors I read growing up. Conan Doyle, a lot of great mystery writers, Dorothy Gale Sayers, who I read and enjoyed. So saying that, you know, there's one person. And of course, my, my husband was super, super supportive when I told him that I wanted to become a writer. <laughs> so all of, all of these are, are huge influences on me. Yeah, I, I want to say two more people just really quick. Anne McCaffrey, actually Isaac Asimov. More information about his past has come out that influenced
influences the way people see him and rightfully so. But as a teenager, discovering iRobot and Susan Calvin, the glue that holds that fix up together, that was, I think, my real entry into science fiction. My father read a lot of science fiction. We had a lot of science fiction in the house, but I mostly grew up reading other kinds of stories, a lot of mysteries. And it was not until I read iRobot that I started to get into science fiction and be interested in science fiction. That was, that was junior high. And that book made a huge difference to the course of my life. So I think there's two ways that an artist can admire a person or be inspired by a person. One is wanting to emulate elements of their art style and their work. And the second is wanting to emulate elements of their personality and their work style. Interestingly, I always sort of grew up kind of like in a vacuum. I didn't really know the names of the artists that I was taking like inspiration from. I grew up on a lot of like anime and manga and comic books, but I would say that the most influential people in my life that have pushed me on the path of art and, and pushed me to keep pursuing it are the, the comic artists that I met when I was young doing Bluebird, who have continued to be my friends and look at my work every year and keep encouraging me. So that's Dustin Nguyen, Todd Nock, uh, Scott Snyder, Greg Capullo. Greg Capullo once said to me that an artist knows from the beginning that they want to do this for the rest of their life. And at the time I was like, this is a lot of work. I don't think I want to do this for the rest of my life. I was about 10 years old at the time. And now I'm like, oh, no, I, now I get what he meant. <laughs> you you, you yeah. just can't escape it. It's a part of you. Not only do I want to, to emulate these artists' skill and excellent work, uh, one of my uh, historical references that I reference for painting is Kelly Frias a lot. Mm. But these amazing artists who took time out of their busy days to look at my work and talk to me and encourage me. I want to be like that. I want to be someone who can give art advice to any beginner who, who's looking for it or who just wants to talk about something that we both love. They have definitely inspired me not just to be a better artist, but a better person overall. And I think that's really cool. <laughs> my inspirations were really easy. My father and my brother, both are one's, one's dead, one's still alive, <laughs> both attorneys um, and both really wanted to write science fiction and both wrote pretty decent science fiction that they never had the chance to get published. And I was surrounded by science fiction for an early age. And, and honestly, the one who first caught me afire uh, after Edgar Rice Burroughs and L. Frank Baum was Larry Niven. And I just grew up with Larry Niven as just this guy who existed and wrote all these books that I enjoyed. And I wrote science fiction stories in high school. And then I went to work. I worked for a long time. And then I started the journey and I felt like I really could not criticize. I couldn't review these people without becoming a published author myself so people could tell me how much my work sucked. And by that time, I had a few more uh, inspirations like Zena Henderson and Cordwainer Smith. And for the Rediscovery books, um, Judy Merrill was definitely my muse. The story has a fun ending. So I am now a published science fiction author, not just through our own company, but I've got, I think, six stories in print and various pro and semi-prosine. So I exist. I'm, I'm a real person. I'm SFWA full member. I, I'm, a, I'm a person. This May, I got invited out to AbSciCon, which is a convention of uh, exobiologists. 500 of the coolest, nerdiest people you ever met. And I gave a talk called Life is Groovy, Astrobiology in the 1960s. And so I name-checked Larry Niven a lot because Larry Niven in the 60s was writing a lot of really cutting-edge stories set in the very new science fiction we had just discovered with all the Mariner probes and stuff. And as I'm name-checking Larry Niven, one of the people in the audience was Larry Niven. <laughs> 
And then we went out for drinks afterwards. And uh, <laughs> he's a nice fun. guy and he's reading my book and he might review it. And if he hates it, I'll let you know that too. <laughs> From a professional standpoint, you are all very talented and published and amazing people when it comes to your creative processes. And of course, your work stands behind you to this day and continues online for that matter as well too. So professionally, you're successful in that regard. Do you consider yourselves personally successful? I'm a solid C-lister. <laughs> and I, I aspire to be a solid B-lister. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I remember after the Hugo nomination for Best Fan Artist, uh, we, we did some research and we came to the conclusion that I'm the youngest person to ever be nominated for Hugo in the history of the award. And I remember sitting the day before the ceremony, looking at the dress I was going to wear for the award ceremony and thinking, man, if I win... I could make history as the youngest Hugo winner ever, forgetting <laughs> already <laughs> that I had already done it. Like that you'd already made history by being the youngest nominee. nominee ever. So I will say that in the words of, of Mike Nesmith, who uh, in an interview, he talked about, he was in an amphitheater playing guitar to an empty theater. And he, he was thinking to himself, someday I'm going to make it, someday I'm going to make it. And he was in the car on his way later to a, a concert where he was going to play in front of thousands and thousands of screaming fans. And he was thinking to himself, someday I'm going to make it. Someday I'm going to make it. Um, <laughs> I think this is a, a flaw. I think um, it's very important for people to routinely look back on what they've accomplished and appreciate it. Mike Nesmith. There's Mike Nesmith. Of, of the monkeys. Of the monkeys. Yeah. And so I think... I have absolutely succeeded and am successful and a small-time celebrity of some sort. Um, <laughs> and I, I want to acknowledge that and also acknowledge that it's, it's never going to slow me down. I'm always going to return to what I love. And what I love is making art. And so the, the success is amazing. And it allows me to meet really cool people and teach people. But ultimately, my goal is not the, the fame or the stardom. It once was, but it isn't anymore. Now it's just to be the best artist that I can be. And maybe also uh, break into the, the art field as a master, a female master, because wow, the, the male, it's very male dominated, all of the, the art masters, both historically and modern day. And uh, I want to change that. I want to be an example of women can be master artists too. <laughs> I'm reminded of that Ben Stiller sketch where he's being Bono from U2 and he says, it's not about the fame or the glamour, or the money or the glamour, or the money. Well, maybe, maybe it's a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah I guess that's what it's about. <laughs> Let me tell you something about Bono. The kid never stopped trying to make a buck. Worse than Danny Partridge. He was very materialistically oriented, you know, and that's not what U2 is about. You know, we're not about the glitz and the glamour, the money and the fame and the power and the touring and the money. Well, maybe we are about that a little bit, but well, I guess that is what we are about. He should have named that group Me Too, not You Too. It's all about him. I suppose it all depends on how you define success. Uh, is success a place you get to and then stop? Uh, is success a... You know, how, how do you measure it? Lorelai has, has issues with setting infinite goals that have no, no end point. <laughs> <laughs>
and so I think success is, is this sort of vague and formalist concept, you know, is it, does winning a Hugo mean that you're successful? And, and if so, what does that mean? Does that mean that you can't, you don't need to keep going? You know, you like the Game of Thrones author and, and get a TV show on television, but never finish your series. Is that success? Ooh, it's financial success, baby. You know, it's fame and fortune, but is it personal success? I don't know. So I guess it really depends on how you define it. I like where I am right now. I'm proud of the books I've written. I'm excited to share the new books I've written. I feel incredibly lucky, so very lucky to be in the place I am right now, to have time to be creative, to have a supportive family, to have space like getting referenced a room of one's own. All of these things are incredible luxuries and I appreciate them deeply and do not take them for granted. So in that sense, I'm very successful in that I already have many things that many other people are trying to get up to and including supportive spouse, an amazing child, a house in one of the best places to live in the world. As for personal success, I suppose I'm getting there. I have two books I've written. I like them. We are not yet at a point where I would say that our business is um, a business which we can live off of. We still have money that we have that comes from outside that we that we live off of, our day job, if you will. Being able to do what I do at all is a kind of success. Just having finished two books and publish them is a success, I think. So I do feel successful in that, in that I have accomplished what I set out to do. I became a writer. I am a writer. I can say I am a writer and mean it without being like, I have an idea. I'm a writer too. I have an idea. I want to publish it someday. I want to write it down someday. No, I've written two books. I've published them. They are out there. They're in over 200 bookstores, thanks to Gideon's help and his hard work. And so I'm a writer. That is a kind of success. Yes. So I do feel successful. The reverse of success is failure. How do you deal with your failures? <laughs> failure's the best. <laughs> failure's like the... Because I, I can't ever achieve success, right? So I fail and then I'm like, all right, next time I'm going to succeed. It's, it's the best motivation for me. That's what we call a learning experience. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, genuinely, it is just, I failed, time to, time to learn from it and see what mistakes I made and see what we can improve on next time. And the best part of failure is it means that I usually did something outside of my comfort zone. It means that next time I'm going to be really prepared to address the things that I made mistakes on in the first place next time I do it. And I think a success is also a piece that I can say that I like, and they do happen. <laughs> so failure means that next time I'm 10%, 20% more likely to produce a piece that I like. So it's pretty cool. That's an interesting way of looking at it. When you start in a new medium, each time your level goes up like 10%. So that by the time you've done 10 or, or more pieces, you have a much higher chance of producing something you like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and failure is like success, right? Is it a place you get to or is it a, is it part of the process, right? You fail until you aren't failing anymore. You know, there was a time when we weren't in any bookstores. There was a time when we didn't have any awards. There was a time when we didn't have any books written. That doesn't exist anymore. My first two books I wrote when I decided I wanted to be a writer, and neither of them will ever be published, most likely. One of them, I might take the basic ideas. There's some good things in there. And I may rewrite it someday, or I may take some parts of it and transform it into something else, because there's good, good parts, there's good bones in there. I had to learn how to write well, particularly long-form novels, because that had not been something I'd really done before. My most recent one, the it's key sequel that I'm working on, I wrote, I think I was up to 60 or 70,000 words of an 80,000 word novel, and then I could not write those last 10,000 words. And I'm like, I don't know why I can't finish this. I don't know what's wrong with it. So I gave it to Gideon. 
and he read it and he said, ah, there's some problems with this. This You need to fix things. And, and I'm like, okay, that's why I was struggling because there were some problems with it. And that's never fun. You want, you know, your loved ones to be like, oh no, this is fantastic, but that's not how you improve. <laughs> you don't want to put something, you either have really, got to have really honest loved ones and be able to take it or find somebody who isn't a loved one to, to give you the bad news. Keetra <laughs> was a failure. At uh, first. Keetra was a novella and it was in third person and it wasn't very good. And then I rewrote it in first person as a novel and it's pretty good. I think all of us, when you fail, you try again. And it's that persistence, that perseverance that eventually leads to success. It's a luxury to have the time, the energy, and the, the financial situation to be able to do that. And maybe you don't make the exact same thing. If you write something, you're like, nope, this is not good enough. And then you move on to something else. You still have the experience of having created that thing. And that has value. There's a thing where people are like, oh, you know, I ha it has to be perfect first time out. And, you know, yeah, no, artists are never like that, right? <laughs> but the thing is, it will never be perfect first time out because you have to learn how to do it. But the things you create along the way aren't necessarily bad. That Bluebird comic uh, that we showed you, I mean, that was a child's work, a child who had no, had very little, you know, art training. And it's very clear. It's still amazing. It's still really great. The expressions of the characters, the story, it's fun to read. I mean, it's, it's worth looking at, it's worth reading. And while I'm not, as an adult, going to publish my early novels, I'm not sorry I wrote them. I'm not sorry I did them. It, they'll be inspiration for further work as I go along. So I, I, you just keep going. <laughs> the younger generation is looking at your works and they're becoming inspired to be creative in their own way. The fact that you have a very talented younger generation with you currently uh, is, is amazing in its own right. But the question is this. How can they inspire the generation that follows them? That's on you. <laughs> we did our job. <laughs> I think there is a certain extent where we have a larger population of people than we've ever had before. And to a degree, now, the, the younger generation is starting to shrink just by birth rates, but we still have more people than we had 55 years ago. And with that comes, there is a, a percentage of that people who are brilliant, who are creative, who are going to want to do amazing things. And so when you think about it in that light, because it's a percentage, we now have more people in the world than ever before who are brilliant, who are doing cutting edge research, who are creating amazing things. I would say that each generation builds on the previous's work and each generation expands on it. And there are more people always to expand on that incredible work. It's not even a matter of what content is inspiring. It's a matter of statistics that, that we can't help but improve and have people doing amazing things more and more because statistically there, there's going to be a certain amount of people who do that. I think for me, seeing role models is a really important way to inspire people. I was talking to a good friend of mine who has a young daughter. She's about nine years old and she's showing interest in, in creative things. And he told me he was so happy that he could show her me and the things that I've done to inspire her to pursue her dreams. And that made me tear up. I, I, that is what I want to do with my life is inspire young girls and show them that 
they can do things. They see people like them doing the things that they want to do and creating the things that they want to create. Uh, that's the other thing is we have more and more people doing amazing things because we have more diversity of people doing incredible things, more access than people have ever had before with internet, new equity laws and everything, new opportunities, but people having a role model that they can see that's like them doing the things that they want to do. That's so important to inspire them to just go. They saw someone previously succeed so they can succeed. And now the world is becoming a friendlier place for them to succeed. And we want to just keep going in that direction of making sure people have the opportunities that they need to pursue the amazing dreams that they have, because we have so many brilliant people in this world and more and more every day. And so we need to welcome them. This is why Journey Press is focused specifically on women and queer creators and characters, because publishing has, and science fiction in a lot of ways has traditionally been uh, the province of white guys. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with white guys, but there's more people in the world than white guys. And for a long time, science fiction suffered because half the population didn't have real access to it or they had access to it but they weren't really welcome in it and now the women are winning all the hugo awards if your life was a science fiction book what would its title be and what would its soundtrack be oh my goodness i'm not sure that my life would make a very interesting novel <laughs> our, our, our life is a science fiction novel we live in the past and true. travel to the present i guess that's true i mean we we I'd, I'd call it time bubble because I mean, as we speak, let's let's see if you can see the. This is this is Hogan's Heroes on my television. <laughs> I turn on the radio. So it's it is the '60s in this house, whether we like it or not. Not just the '60s, but it is September twenty. No, October first, October one. 1967, or as Chris would say, September 31st. <laughs> so yeah, we live in a science fiction novel. We we are out of time with everything else, which gives us all sorts of interesting insights on reality. Lorelai, two years ago, was 1965. She knows 1965 better than she knows 2020, and wouldn't everyone pay for that experience? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do hate to say this, but that ends this particular episode of Two Geeks Talking. I want to thank you all for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having us. This was a lot of fun. Before I let you all go, where can we find you? How can we support you? And of course, where can we find you online on this wide world of the internet? I do have some social media, but I don't really keep it updated. It's just there because you're supposed to have it if you're an author. We hate social media. <laughs> yeah. My social media, you can see it on the bottom there. Instagram is Lorelai.Ester and Twitter is Lorelai Esther. And my illustrated works, if you want to support me financially, is in the Keetra Saga. It's also a really... That way. It's also a really good <laughs> book series. So I highly recommend it. Uh, just even as an unbiased teenager, it's it's really good. <laughs> really good. <laughs> yes. um, you can find those at journeypress.com as well as all of our other books or in your local bookstores. And if you get it from a local bookstore, you're actually likely to get a signed book plate with custom art that I've done on it and signatures by the authors. So support locals. Uh, before online shopping because yeah. you actually get something out of it. You can always call ahead to the bookstore. If they don't have it at the moment, then they can order it in for you and they can probably call us up and say, hey, could you send us some more book plates? We've sent book plates out to hundreds of stores across the country with 
art. Uh, they're meant to be stuck in the book and they've got a custom image and our, our signatures as appropriate for whichever book we've done. But the most important thing is support your local bookstores because they're the literary hub of the community. They highlight new and unique creators and, and local people in a way that the evil river running through uh, South America <laughs> cannot. We made it our mission very early on to support local bookstores. So yes, you can go to journeypress.com. You can see our books, but if you want to buy them, even though this makes us personally, it makes us the least money, at least per transaction. Um, it makes us the happiest. Oh, and review our stuff. On um, yeah, please. On, please on, do on the reviews. evil river in South America. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> please do leave reviews. That helps tremendously. And I want to differentiate between journeypress.com, which is our press where we sell our books. And it's not just our books. We, uh, Marie Vibbert, Erica Friedman, Tom Ferdom, Roselle George Brown, and of course, all the amazing authors in Rediscovery. We are a real publishing house, not a mom and pop organization, but we also are published through it. <laughs> We're also clients. Um, but I want to differentiate between journeypress.com, which is worth a visit, and galacticjourney.org, our history project for which we were nominated for a Hugo four times. Olaf calls it's it the most ambitious science fiction product uh, project of modern science fiction. Right. Uh, and we review everything there. While the press has a very specific female and queer author focus, we work to highlight those people in Galactic Journey, but we also cover pretty much everything that comes out. You could conceivably and feasibly read all of the science fiction magazines, watch all the movies, watch all the main science fiction television shows, read all of the books. That's going to change pretty soon. We're reaching a point of inflection. But right now... We'll just get more reviewers. We don't have slots. We'll just um, start publishing every day. But right now we publish like every other day. You will find a new article on the journey and it will be about something cool in the past. The fashion, the politics, the science fiction that was coming out back then, the TV shows that were coming out back then, like Twilight Zone, which we won an award for our coverage of. Janice just wrote an article on the Green Hornet, which is the, oh. uh, the other Caped Crusader show of the it time. So good. So good. It only lasted a season, and I honestly liked it so much better than Batman. <laughs> uh, GalacticJourney.org. Join us for Star Trek. We want you. Please go to the journey. It's free. It will always be free check it out, see the work that us and our correspondents, mm -hmm. we have people all over the world writing for us. It is worth seeing their work. Uh, there's some amazing people in there. Including Hugo Award winner, Cora Buller. She essentially got two Hugos this year because it came in pieces. <laughs> oh dear, <laughs> she's in Germany. <laughs> Sarah Pinkster says hers came in, in pieces oh, too. Oh no. Uh, anyway, mm. that's so sad. All right. And if you want to talk to me on social media, Twitter's the place you can find me as Gideon Marcus 9 or uh, Journey Galactic. But honestly, the best place is our Discord server, which is Portal 55, and I can get you an invitation to that. And that's where we watch Star Trek. There's yeah. a link on the site. Yeah, if you go to the website, there's a link to the Discord server, and you can talk to us directly. The website, galacticjourney.org. Yes. Um, so, yes, please do. And talk. remember, best fanzine is spelled G-A-L. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, like I said, that ends this particular episode of Two Geeks Talking. You can, of course, find this interview and a thousand plus others on our website, tgtmedia.com or twogeekstalking.com. That's the word two, not the number two. If you go to the number two, you just haven't been paying attention for the past 15 years. I don't, I don't know what to say. Uh, but also on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash c forward slash tgtmedia. That's a lot more updated than our website because I am only one person. Give me a break. And of course, as I say every week, everyone has a story to tell. It's up to me to help bring that out. Thanks for listening and watching on Two Geeks Talking.